Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Psalm 131, verses 1 to 3. I will be reading in Spanish. Señor, mi corazón no es orgulloso, ni son altivos mis ojos. No busco grandezas desmedidas, ni proezas que excedan a mis fuerzas. Todo lo contrario, he calmado y aquietado mis ansias. Soy como un niño recién amamantado en el regazo de su madre. Sí, como un niño recién amamantado soy. Israel, pon tu esperanza en el Señor desde ahora y para siempre. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, I'm going to ask you some really meta questions, all right? But take them seriously. Think about it. If I were to ask you uh, to consider what makes your life worth living, uh, what are the things that bring your spirit to life? What are the things that you think about when you begin to think about what defines you? Uh, in our cultural moment that so emphasizes passions and dreams, what are your dreams? What are your passions? I mean, seriously, for a moment, right now, just name it for yourself. Don't, don't uh, wander off mentally. Like, name it. What are some of the things that bring your spirit to life, your passions, your dreams? What are they? What defines you? Some of us here, uh, you might instinctually desire to give a spiritual answer. And what you want to say is, Jesus. Pastor, I just want more of Jesus. If that's you, and that's genuinely the case, you can check out for like the next 30 minutes because you don't have, I have nothing to say to you. You've transcended everything I'm about to say, but for the rest of us, what is it? Is it health? Is it relationships? Is it success? Is it respect? Is it children? Is it, is it successful children? I mean, what is it? What are the things that define your life? What are your dreams? What are your passions? What are the things, if you could just possess them, achieve them, become them, you'd have a sense of contentment in your life. And could you be content? Here's probably the biggest question. Could you be content if those things never materialize? I want you to keep those answers in your head today because we're going to continue to come back to them. Because what you are thinking about right now might not be a bad thing. It might actually be a good thing to desire. But I wonder the extent to which it will actually provide you what you're hoping it's going to provide. Today, we're going to be continuing our series, Living Inside Out, Life in the Psalms. Uh, and through the series, if you've been with us, you know that we've been considering what the Psalms have to teach us about spiritual practices, uh, practices that deepen our growth and relationship with God. Over the course of the series, we've looked at the importance of God's Word and uh, prayer, hospitality, confession, and rest, and more. Last week, Pastor Abe reminded us of the freedom that comes through obedience. And this week, we consider what many of those practices ought to be actually driving us toward, which is a sense of contentment. That word might be one of the most foreign words and concepts to many of us. And yet, as we try to understand it, we actually begin to discover much about ourselves. And I hope that's actually the case today. So with that in mind, let's consider the notion of contentment by considering first the elusiveness of contentment, 
our lack of contentment, and then finally, a source of contentment. All right, so first, the, the elusiveness of contentment. Uh, contentment is actually a really hard uh, concept to define, to nail down. Uh, I mean, in general, contentment is to be satisfied, but I think it's hard to nail down because contentment feels so elusive to us all the time. I mean, think about the last time you felt content. I mean, can you think of a time that you feel content, or you felt content, and do you currently still feel as content as you maybe once did when you felt that sense of contentment? Probably not. I mean, think about it this way. We are about to celebrate Thanksgiving. It is a day where many of us are going to eat ourselves silly. Uh, it's a day when we are supposed to reflect on all the things that we are thankful for having in life. I mean, in this sense, Thanksgiving is supposed to remind us of all the reasons why we ought to be content and fulfilled in life. And I'm glad that we've got that on our calendar every year. But do you know the other thing that's on our calendar every year? Do you know what happens the very next day after Thanksgiving? Of course, Black Friday immediately reminds us of all the reasons why you are not content and satisfied in life. And Black Friday really just starts an entire season dedicated to commercials that just scream, you and those you love are not enough. You don't have enough. But if you just buy our product at this discounted price, you might just be able to dissuade that deep longing and me for meaning and purpose that might otherwise cripple your soul. I mean, every commercial, they don't say it that way, but that's basically what they're saying. All you need is our product. And maybe you'll find some measure of contentment. I mean, it's comical. The irony of it's comical that we can't go one day of feeling content before immediately we return to discontentment. We struggle so badly with experiencing this satisfaction and contentment that the psalmist's words in uh, verse 2, where he speaks, he says, uh, this is David speaking, but I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. What in the world does that mean? For many of us, that is absolute nonsense to many of our modern ears. What does it mean to have a calm, quieted soul? I mean, for so many of us, that kind of contentment is so elusive. In a passage that I'm going to draw on uh, later, the Apostle Paul in Philippians, he speaks about contentment as well. And it always cracked me up how he speaks about uh, contentment. It's a little bit too real. Um, in uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I have learned the secrets of being content. I mean, how much more elusive could you be than to say, it's a secret? You can't just know what it means to be content. Uh, content. It's a secret that you need to learn. And as a result, many of us, I think if we're honest, we haven't cracked that code. We haven't discovered what that secret really is. And so, as a result, we end up just pursuing all these different outlets to try to, try to discover what that secret could be, to try to experience that elusive contentment. I mean, what did you name earlier? Right? What is it that's on your mind? For some, maybe it's, a, it's a, a new job. For others, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's, it's a raise. Maybe it's an upgraded apartment. For others, maybe it's good health. Maybe it's a happy family. You know, maybe for others, it's just as simple as safety and basic provision. And then maybe for some of us here, 
you have great apartments. You have great jobs. You have loving spouses. You have not uh, just mere basic provision. You actually have abundance. And nonetheless, you are restless, wanting more, seeking more, pursuing more, longing for more. Often contentment is elusive because we have no idea how to attain it. There's always something more we desire, something more that we feel like we need if we're finally going to be able to rest. Why is that? Why is it so elusive? Let's consider next our lack of contentment. Uh, So every year, the UN releases a study on happiness um, where they look at about 150 or so different countries. And it's interesting that the U.S. has pretty consistently plummeted on that list. A little over 12 years ago, we were third on that list. Uh, About 10 years ago, we plummeted to about 19th on that list. We've slightly increased to, uh, I believe it was 15 or 16 this year. And I will say that overall, being 15th on a list is not terrible, but there are many countries that come before us, and it's also interesting how quickly we've nosedived. Also, just really super interesting, the top 10 most happy countries in the world are almost all Nordic democratic socialist nations. I don't know what that's about. I'm sure someone's done some study about it, found that very interesting. But one of the things that uh, the researchers uh, discovered in their study uh, was some of the reasons why they think the U.S. has plummeted so quickly. Uh, And some of what's come out of that study is that researchers believe that one of the main drivers of our unhappiness is actually related to increases in addiction in the U.S. Uh, They've noted a very rapid increase of all different types of addictions among uh, Americans. Of course, we we know of uh, addictions like that of uh, substance abuse. But some of the other things that they've noticed is that there's upward trends in excessive gambling and use of digital media and sexual behaviors. There's ongoing growths and addictions to these things, which individuals pursue compulsively. This kind of the bottom line definition of addiction. They pursue these things compulsively despite the consequences that come as a result of these actions. And addictions are often part of this cycle that begins with some form of unhappiness. And as a result of circumstances, this addiction only exacerbates those feelings of unhappiness. In the context, in the context of our topic, it of course would then lead to a lack of contentment. There's always this wrestling because of a unhappiness that's there. And so there's these pursuits of trying to calm that unhappiness. And we often get as Americans, and as this research study is showing, we become addicted to the very things that we were once using as distractions from the discontentment that has become kind of a staple of our lives. These things, they easily can become an attempt at numbing or medicating our inner turmoil. And we even use things that might not be bad in and of themselves. I mean, social media, exercise and diet, work, shopping, sex, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but we've become addicted to them. And it's absolutely leaving us in deeper states of discontent. I mean, just take, for example, social media. Easy example. You know, for a while, social media was a way of connecting people that you don't get to see regularly, right? It was a way of staying connected. Now, it's become something radically different. Now, 
certain platforms are just all about how I want my life to be better than yours, or at least perceived that way, and so I curate a life with the right angles, the right filters, the best captions, so that in some way I feel like my life is worthy and valid, and I'll present my best self forward. And so we then inevitably, as a result, are all comparing our lives to the, the best foot forward of someone else. And as a result, I feel terrible about myself because I know that's not really who I truly am. They feel terrible about themselves because they think I'm better than maybe I actually am and they know that they are not what they actually are when they're putting their best foot forward. And it's just a cycle of discontent, unhappiness. You know, it's other, that's, you know, of course, one area of social media. There's other areas of social media where people go there to express their, their anger, their feelings, whatever it might be, whatever's bothering them right now. Twitter has just become, or X, I guess, whatever, has just become a cesspool of people arguing, of condescension, of general vitriol for one another. But we feel justified within our outrage or our condescension because we feel as though this is the one place that I can really make myself known. But if you've ever been in that environment, no one walks away from Twitter feeling better about life, better about themselves. Everyone walks away a little bit discontent, a little bit more unsatisfied, a little bit more angry, a little bit more unhappy. And it is wild how we have become addicted to that cycle. We can't stop. What about work? You know, workaholism is probably uh, one of the only isms that gets treated like a virtue. But I mean, think about why we so often work so hard. I mean, often it's because we're striving for something beyond what we have right now. It is a means of, of promotion or a raise or some kind of recognition or platform. Of course, when, it's, when, it is, when that is the goal, it's going to be impossible to feel content right now because we know that there's so much more that we want to achieve, so much more success that we want to have. I mean, for some, we get addicted to, to shopping because just one more purchase might make me feel better. We get addicted to exercise and diet because just one more gain might make me more attractive or might make, make, make me feel more athletically successful, whatever it might be. People get addicted, addicted to, to sex or the pursuit of sex or perversions of sex like pornography because, once again, it's a way of escaping the unfulfilling experiences of the now. I mean, these are symptoms of discontentment. And they are making our society a society marked by excess and personal autonomy to pursue whatever I deem necessary for my life. It's leading us to being less and less happy, less and less satisfied. We have no idea what it means to be truly content. Now, this psalmist actually gives us a couple interesting clues as to why I think we get to that point. And there are two things that I want to look at in the psalm. One of them has to do with pride, and the other has to do with a lack of wisdom. I think the psalmist gives us an extraordinary amount of insight into our discontentment by focusing on pride and a lack of wisdom. Look at verse 1. It says this. It says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Let me stop there for a minute. What is that? Well, the psalmist here is confronting the pride that so often is at the heart of our discontentment. Pride keeps us perpetually longing for more. And what is pride? Well, pride is thinking too much about ourselves. 
It is an inordinate obsession with the pursuit of my own fulfillment and my own desires. I mean, Romans 12 says that we ought not to, to think more highly of ourselves, but rather to, to think about ourselves with sober judgment. Pride is this unbalanced centering of ourselves that lacks a sober judgment. Famously, uh, Proverbs 16 tells us that pride goes before the fall, that there is something that is problematic within that self-centeredness. When we center ourselves and we think only about ourselves, you'd think that could be the fountain of fulfillment. And our culture right now certainly believes that to be true. Just find your own sense of happiness and that will produce for you some measure of contentment and satisfaction. But in a culture full of centering ourselves, our desires, our wants, as we just said, we are becoming more and more unhappy. Because pride, this centering of ourselves, is no solution to discontentment. Again, things like social media prove this to be true. Focusing on ourselves does not produce rest, but rather a restlessness, a discontent. And just as a little bit of a side note, pride, on the one hand, can certainly be thinking too highly of ourselves, but pride can also very much manifest itself in consistently thinking too little of ourselves as well. And what I mean by that is we can reject sober judgment about ourselves by overemphasizing how we are not good enough, not smart enough, not pretty enough, not popular enough, not successful enough. That can be just as self-centered as thinking too highly of ourselves. Pride is looking at ourselves too much, focusing too much attention on ourselves, centering ourselves. We're thinking about ourselves too much, and that's never going to lead us to the kind of contentment that the psalmist is describing. But the other thing that we see here is not only is pride an issue, but there's also an issue of wisdom. Look at what the rest of that verse, uh, verse 1 says. It goes on to say, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Let me stop there. In other words, the psalmist has found rest in knowing that God knows far more than he does. That God's wisdom exceeds his own. And a mind that does not center the wisdom of God and assumes at times itself superior to the, the wisdom of God is a mind that's going to perpetually be discontent. The psalmist here is describing a trust and a rest in the wisdom of God, a wisdom that's beyond his own. And why? Why would not doing that produce uh, some kind of discontent? Well, when we insist that we know what we need to be content, we are often in that moment concerning ourselves with great matters, in the words of the psalmist, that God alone can know. And this often leads to a lack of trust in God and what his wisdom and knowledge demands, because we assume we know better. I know for a fact, in my own life, I have experienced discontent, and I also know for a fact, in the lives of many others, as a pastor, walking with many people over the years, I also know Others have experienced discontentment because of a misplaced confidence that God will provide and will accomplish what I have deemed necessary for my life. If I declare it to be so, that this is the way I will produce some kind of contentment, and then when it doesn't come, I'm devastated 
because I thought that was what God wanted for me, when in reality, I never really sought after God's wisdom. I was relying on my own. I should be successful. I should be financially secure. I should be relationally or sexually fulfilled. Whatever it might be, whatever we've been thinking of, I should have that. Unless we've actually laid those things down before, the wisdom of God, we might just be putting our hopes in something that God never intends for us. And as a result, we may not ever actually experience. And so as a result, we're left in a constant place of discontent. It's a misplaced trust. It's a trust in my own wisdom, not in the wisdom of God. Because maybe in God's wisdom, he will, his will is different than what we've determined our life should be and should look like. A couple of years ago, uh, a friend and pastor here in New York, John Stark, he wrote a book called The Secret Place of Thunder, which I'd commend to you. Uh, but the book, he, in the book, he's pastorally confronting uh, the reality that we all live these performative lives that often leave us quite empty. And in the book, he notes, uh, he tells a story about a minister whose family uh, was hit really hard by a plague, uh, which resulted in the death of uh, this pastor's uh, children. And amid all of that deep turmoil, John, he, he uh, chronicles some of the things that this pastor, who had lost some children, was reflecting on in the midst of that obviously painful and hard season. And the pastor uh, recalls and reflects on what he described as a created fullness and an uncreated fullness. And he says this, In times of loss, we experience the frailty of the uncreated fullness. I'm sorry, of the, <laughs> we experience the frailty of created fullness. The created fullness being fullness that we try to find in our things. Money, health, success, or status. Created fullness is focusing on money, riches, health, suffering, or lack of suffering. And he goes on to say that poverty empties your money, sickness empties your health, old age empties your potential, suffering empties your sense of well-being. This is what happens when we focus on created faults. But then he goes on to say, once you are disenchanted with the quote, created fullness, you can embrace uncreated fullness. He says that he who feeds upon created goodness may soon eat himself out of it all. The stock will be spent, and which is worse, the soul will be dried up that hath nothing else to nourish it. But he who lives upon uncreated fullness is never at a loss. In other words, the created fullness, the things that we pursue, they all have ends. They all will eventually dry up. Poverty is going to empty your money. Sickness is going to empty your health. Old age is going to empty your potential. Suffering is going to empty your sense of well-being. Everything that we tend to put our hopes in, the things that we pursue for contentment, it's created fullness that's going to eventually be taken away and be insufficient. And it is only when we find this uncreated fullness a fullness that cannot be taken away, that we will then experience true contentment. And this uncreated fullness is a fullness rooted in the wisdom of God. 
This is what the psalmist had discovered about contentment when he said, I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me to know. That kind of rest is found only in the uncreated fullness of God's wisdom. And until we embrace that wisdom, we will never find rest. And famously, St. Augustine in his confessions asserted that you have made us a Lord for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. We will never find the fullness of rest until we look to the wisdom of God. God himself is that uncreated fullness that brings rest. And so if that's true, how do we get it? How do we experience it? How can I honestly say, like the psalmist, that I have a calmed and quieted soul? I am content. Let's look at it finally, a source of contentment. All right, let me draw in Philippians 4. I mentioned earlier. Again, I love the way that Paul talks about contentment in Philippians 4. This is what he says. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In other words, it, it kind of sounds to me like Paul is this wise old sage who's lived a lot of life just saying, listen, child, I too have experienced all kinds of struggles in life. But I want you to know, whether I've lived a life of plenty or a life of want, just know I have found the true uh, secret to contentment. Now, on the one hand, as I said, that doesn't seem fair. It seems kind of elusive that it's a big secret. But why is the contentment that we are called to experience not just something that we can know? Well, it is and it isn't. I want us to pay attention to what Paul does next because he goes on now to give the secret to his contentment. He says this, I have learned the secret of being fulfilled in contentment. He says, in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, here's the key. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Interesting. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, this might be one of the most famous and misused Bible verses in the entire Bible. It's got to be at least top three. It's probably been plastered on more mugs and bumper stickers than any other verse. And maybe you know the verse more as, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, how is it misused? Well, often when we use that verse, when it's declared, it is to mean something along the lines of, nothing can stand in my way when attempting to accomplish my dreams or achieve my desires, for I have Christ who will give me strength to accomplish those things. But is that what Paul is saying? Is the strength of Jesus given to me so that I might achieve great goals or to remove great struggles from my life? No. It isn't what Paul is saying. What's the context of what he just described? The context is contentment in all circumstances. It's contentment if I experience the success or if I don't experience the success. It's the contentment that if I have great health or if my health plummets, it's nonetheless content, contentment. The secret to Paul's contentment is not that Jesus gives me strength to achieve what will bring my contentment. Instead, the secret to contentment is that Jesus himself is the source of the contentment. Jesus is not a means to an end. Rather, he is the end himself. You cannot achieve contentment. 
You can't do it. Rather, it's something that is received, given to you, not achieved. I once heard someone describe it, uh, contentment, that it's something you cannot do. Rather, it is something that is created in us. It's interesting. We're commanded to be content, and yet at the same time, it's not something that we can do. It's something that's given to us. And that's why it's a secret. It's a secret because in many ways, the kind of contentment that Paul is describing is a contentment that only a Christian can experience. Because all of it is rooted in the Christian's experience of the work of Jesus. When we understand what Jesus has done and accomplished for us, it's in that work that we begin to experience the kind of contentment that comes, no matter what might come in life. What does that look like? It is Jesus being for us what we could not be for ourselves. We said earlier that pride or thinking too much of ourselves is often what drives some of our discontentment. Well, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul reminds us that out of his great love for us, Christ leaves behind his riches, and for our sake, he becomes poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. In other words, Christ, out of love for you, laid down his life for your good, thinking about you more than himself. We said earlier that not trusting the wisdom of God leads to discontentment. What we see consistently with Jesus is that he always trusted the will of the Father. In John 6, Jesus tells us that he didn't come to accomplish his own will, but, by the, but only the will of the Father. If you remember, before Jesus goes to the cross, he's burdened with the weights of the coming sacrifice, and he says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus Christ, for you, trusted the wisdom of the Father, even in hardship and pain. And when we see Jesus as the one who has accomplished such things for us, when we recognize the pride that keeps us discontent, this constant focus on myself, when we recognize the way that we don't trust the Lord the way that we should, and we instead rely on our own wisdom instead of surrendering to the things of God and what God may have for us. When we realize those realities and we again shift our eyes back to Jesus, it's there where we will be able to experience measures of rest, satisfaction, to be able to trust him with our lives no matter what might come. There is where we experience Contentment. Contentment is being able to say, in every situation, I can do all things in Christ. I can handle those things because I have Jesus. The last thing I want to highlight here is actually the very uh, last verse of our psalm. This struck me. Honestly, it struck me like super late as I was preparing for this. I'm, I'm reading back through the psalm and something stuck out to me. Look at how the psalmist ends. He says, Israel... Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. It struck me that this verse doesn't say, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, period. As though it's something that they're only going to experience now. Rather, it says, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And here's what struck me about that. That forevermore is the very thing that makes contentment for us so often so elusive. Because we might experience some measure of contentment immediately now, but we know it's not going to last. But whatever's being described here is something that we're going to experience for an eternity. A contentment and a rest 
that will last forevermore. I mean, this is screaming to us about the existence of that uncreated fullness. That as we hope in the Lord, we are given a forevermore. I mean, the cross and resurrection of Jesus proved to us that there is a forevermore for those who hope in him. Which means that whatever created fullness we are pursuing now could not possibly compare to the uncreated fullness provided to us in this evermore. And so again, I ask you to call to mind what you named earlier. Can that thing, whatever it is, can it provide you a forevermore? A rest and a contentment that will last forevermore? Because if it can't, why cling to it? Why assume it's going to give you more than you know it's not going to give you? Why continue to let it control you? And why not instead shift our eyes off of that thing onto Jesus, trusting that he is truly for our good, accomplished a work that provides us this evermore, and maybe there begin to find measures of contentment and rest, trusting that he's with us, holds us, and he will forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we know that you see us in our restless state. We know that you see us in our longings and our desires for things of this world, created things to provide for us a measure of rest and contentment. You see us constantly chasing after things that we, we know are not going to ultimately provide us the kind of contentment that we seek. But out of love, Lord, you do not leave us in that vicious cycle. But out of love, you sent your son to break that cycle and to remind us that the things of this world will never satisfy. But that the only thing that will bring that true rest and contentment is you. And we experience it through the work of our Savior, Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to not think of himself, but to lay his life down for those that he loves. We thank you for his obedience and willingness to trust in your wisdom. Lord, we ask that you would help us to take our eyes off the things of this world, to place them upon Jesus, so that we, like Paul, can say, you know what, no matter what comes in life, whether I achieve the things that I, I desire and want or if none of them actually come to fruition, no matter what life might bring, I will nonetheless be content for I have Jesus. Do that work in us by the power of your spirit today. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.